Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, would you open to Philippians with me? <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be at this morning. Um, it is good to be back with you. Uh, if you were here last week, I was out um, with our dear friends Will and Susan Bynum, uh, who we sent out uh, about eight months ago. Um, Will is pastoring in Illinois. Uh, they're doing well. Um, they asked me to give everyone a hug for them, so there's your hug. Okay, um, It's good to be here with you, though. I love preaching. Um, but there's something different when you're preaching to the flock that God has given to you. Um, and it's a joy to be here with you this morning. So Philippians 4 is where we're going to be at. Um, but Philippians 4, verse 1, starts with an interesting word. It says, therefore. Um, now here's this quirky little trick, right? Uh, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Because therefore is a transition word, and you're not going to understand what comes after that transition word unless you understand what happened before that. So in chapter 3, Paul has essentially brought everything to a climax, talking about his testimony, who he is, rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing with and for the Philippians, the gift of partnership that God has given to Paul and that group of people. And in the middle of that, he says, everything else that I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, because Christ is the most important. Christ is the one relationship that we can't move through life with and experience joy. He says, I count everything else as rubbish. I don't care if it all passes away as long as I have Christ. And then he says this interesting phrase. He says, press on. He says it twice. Encouraging the Philippians to continue to press on towards what? Towards success? No, press on towards the goal. And the goal is eternity with Christ. It's having that relationship with Jesus. He reminds them to press on. And then you saw it last week. He says at the end of chapter 3 to imitate him as he's imitating Christ. And then he starts in chapter 4 and he says, therefore... So because I've said all of this, now I want you to understand this. Now, before we read this, let me address the elephant in the room. I got a new Bible. It's large. I might have to go back to the table because it's super giant print. It's really heavy. But you know what? I'm not going to have any issue reading these words. Some of you might be able to read them from where you're sitting. But I'm going to be able to read them, and it's going to be great, because it says right there in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now. 
Lord, as we open the Holy Scriptures before us, God, would you truly bring them to life for us? God, help us to understand what it is you're communicating through these words. God, what it is that we need to to walk away with this morning. God, that we wouldn't be walking away just being able to check a box that we went to church this morning, but God, that we would be walking away being able to say, I met with the Lord Jesus today. Holy Spirit, would you lead us in this time? God, help us to rightly understand the word for your glory, God. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's a couple things that I want you to see here in this text this morning. Just these few verses. I want you to stay in verse 1 with me for a minute. So if, if you're taking notes, if you're writing things down, circle that word therefore, and then just draw an arrow back to chapter 3. That way when you read this, you're, you're reminded to look back. Right? You, you got to see what's, what's come before, what he's been saying, and then what he says after. Because he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. Okay? Remember this deep love and affection and partnership that Paul has with the Philippians. He says, I love you and I long for you, my joy and crown. My joy and crown. We're not talking about a crown of royalty. We're talking about a, a wreath, a crown that those would have received after they've won a race. You see, remember Paul talks about pressing on towards the goal. He says to run the race with endurance, to finish the race well. And he says, you, Philippians, you're my crown. You're the joy that I've experienced along the journey. Because of your love for Christ, because of your love for me, because of your love for others, When people look back at the life of Paul, he wants them to know. Here's the Philippians. They were the crown jewel. They were the ones that I so deeply loved. But you know what's so interesting here in chapter 4? You realize, if you haven't already, that the Philippians are imperfect. Because as much as he loves them, there's issues within the body. Right? There's, there's issues. And so before we talk about the issue, I want you to circle these two words, stand firm. Paul has said, therefore, stand firm. So therefore, what's it there for? Look back to chapter 3, what he's been talking about. And he's essentially been talking about orthodoxy. Okay? The, the foundation of the teaching. What has been known 
for some days, some years, what I've been telling you and what is carried through history. So as we are in this room this morning, when we talk about orthodoxy, we're talking about 2,000 years of the New Testament church. The foundations of the gospel teaching that Jesus taught. Pointing to himself as the promised Messiah. You see, if you look through church history, you can see that orthodoxy. That there are strong tenets, primary doctrinal teachings of the church that have carried through the orthodoxy. But here's what Paul is talking about when he says to stand firm, thus in the Lord my beloved. You see, he wants them to stand firm on the orthodoxy. But then in verses 2 and 3, he's talking about a very real, tangible example that's happened in the body of the church. That these two individuals are at odds with each other and they're disagreeing. And because of their disagreement, it's affecting their orthopraxy. Like, man, we're just getting all kinds of words today, right? Orthodoxy is the strong foundational historical teaching. Orthodoxy is the strong historical practice of those doctrines. And those two things have to be tied together. Because when you believe something, but you live a different way that's contrary to what you believe, it leads people astray. You see, your orthodoxy, your foundation that you stand firm on in the Lord should influence the way that you practice, that you live, right? Your practice, the way that you're living, the way that people see you live should point them back to what you believe. If those two things aren't in agreement, we have issues, right? We have issues. James says it this way, James 2, you can write this reference down, James 2, 14 through 26, but in verse 17 he says this, faith without works, do you know it, is dead. Faith in the doctrines, right, in the teachings of Christ, without works is dead. Because here's what happens. If you know all the teachings, if you've learned all the information, but you don't practice it, you just become like a sour sponge. And if the sponge isn't wrung out, eventually you just throw it out, right? Because it starts to smell. Our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy have to be tied together. Because faith without works is dead. You see, it's not enough just to come to church and say, yeah, I went to church on Sunday morning. Yeah, I believe those things. But then the other six days of the week, we're not affected by those things. Our lives are separate. Our practice is separate from our belief. But see, the reality is is that your practice is never separate from your belief. Because what your practice is is showing people what you really believe. What you say you believe may not always be what you practice. 
Those two things need to be tied together. Paul reminds the Philippians of that. He says you need to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. And he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, Philippians, also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I want you to circle labored. I want you to circle fellow workers. And I want you to underline side by side. Here's what I think is so tempting for us in our culture. We read that text. Some of us even did it this morning as I was reading it, right? As you're reading it to yourself, you're looking at this and Paul says these two women are in disagreement, right? This is their fault. Paul doesn't tell us what they're disagreeing about, right? But we all start to assume what they're disagreeing about. And what we do is we start to naturally pick sides. Which side do I want to be on, right? Who do I have a deeper relationship with and whose side am I going to stand on in this disagreement? But Paul interestingly calls them to the church at Philippi. He calls them what? Co-laborers with Christ. Fellow workers. They've labored with me side by side. And he wants them to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase, right? Because when we say agree in the Lord, there can be a lot of different applications of that, right? Do we need to agree on everything or just some things? What does it really mean to agree in the Lord? Well, I think that we need to agree on the primary things, right? We need to agree on the primary things. We need to agree that there is one God. There's one God who reveals himself in three distinct persons who are all equally God. Man is created in the image and likeness of God. We need to agree on that. Can, can we come to that agreement if we're not already there? Mankind is created in the image and likeness of God. We have not evolved from primates. Like, do you realize that if you step into a belief of macro, big evolution, okay, micro, things evolve within their own kind, right? The dogs that we have today are not like the dogs that were around a thousand years ago. Okay, they've evolved within their own kind. But mankind has not come from a different animal. And we, when we say and believe that we've actually come from another created being, it's diminishing the work of God. Because animals are not created in the image and likeness of God. And aren't we thankful for that? When... Paul says we need to agree in the Lord. We need to agree on the primary things. 
We need to agree that man has a problem and that problem is sin. We need to agree that that sin is what has affected the relationship between mankind and God. And because of that, Jesus had to step into our place. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he did put on flesh. He came. The Word became flesh. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we couldn't die. And he rose from the grave like none of us could. We have to agree on those things. But you know what we don't have to agree on? The color of the carpet. We don't have to agree on who did a better job mudding the holes and painting over them. My granddad's belief was you can fix anything with drywall mud. And interestingly enough, I never saw him sand the drywall mud. I always had to do that. When we allow minor things to become major things, it affects everything. I firmly believe this. In our culture, we've lost the ability to disagree well. And do you know where I feel that the most? That we've lost the ability to disagree well? Within the church. Because we've allowed personal preferences and minor doctrines to become major things. And the way that those things fester and continue to create division and separation is because we don't talk about them. You see, we need to have crucial conversations. We need to spend time with others who we disagree with. Like, I don't want to. That's scary. You're right. It is. You just spend time with others listening you spend time with others who you disagree with, reading things that they've written. You need to learn from them. That doesn't mean that you should change your belief to believe what they believe. It doesn't mean that they should change their belief to believe what you believe. It means that we care deeply about other people who are created in the image and likeness of God and want them to know Jesus. And we want to make sure that we agree on the main things. Don't let the little things divide us and split us up. And, and here's, here's what I think Paul is saying here and why this is so important. Because of the language that he uses. He says, Philippians, I want you to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. They're fellow workers. These are not random individuals. They're women who Paul and the other Philippians know. They're people who they deeply love. They're not just random people that they walked up to on the street corner and decided that they disagreed about something. They're people that they... No, they're sisters in Christ. 
We don't know much about <clears throat> these two individuals. We don't know much about the disagreement, except that they're disagreeing about something, right? But here's what I find interesting about this particular topic, and I'm not going to dive super deep into it. I just want to take an opportunity to just educate all of us a little bit, because I, I think what tends to happen, and I alluded to this a minute ago, we read this and we see the names of these women. We see that Paul has made it known who they are, right? Like, they're named. He's not alluding to a potential problem. He's telling the Philippian church, it's these two. So it's probably a big deal, right? And we look at it and we start to negatively think. We've all done this at some point. We start to negatively think towards other people based on their gender, based on the things that they disagree on, the things that they believe, the actions that they take, and we start to cast that onto other people, right? So this is the way it's happened in the church for years. Paul names two women who are in disagreement in the Philippian church, and now there's a a vein of people within the Christian Orthodox Church who think that women are just the problem. Right? So when you hear church history talked about often, you think about all the men who have done things, but who knows what the women are doing, right? Anybody know the name Katerina Von Boro? You know that name? She raised six children... She lived in an old castle that had 60 rooms in it, and there were very seldom nights where any of those rooms were empty. She didn't only raise her own children, she took care of those who came in seeking refuge, those who needed help, those who were um, staying there in her home as they studied the Christian faith. See, what's interesting about Katerina is that she escaped the convent. She was a nun. She escaped in 1523 at the beginning of the Reformation. See, many of, many of us know her as Katerina Luther. She married Martin Luther. See, everybody knows Martin Luther, right? But what about his wife, who I love this story. Luther had been gone for some time, writing, teaching, doing all these things. He's, you have to remember, he's, he's an enemy of the king. And Luther comes home late. Katerina opens the door and sees Luther, gloomy, depressed. And she looks at him and says... Our God must have died if Martin is so depressed. And it sparked him out of his depression. See, Katerina raised their children. She took care of Luther's students who studied the Christian faith. She 
got up at 4 a.m. every day to prepare the food for the day, to take care of the animals, to minister to people in the community. And she cared for Martin for the rest of his life as he dealt with depression and illness and all of these things. But many people know Martin, but not Katerina. What about the name Susanna Wesley? Anybody know that name? Probably not. She raised two young boys to be fine men who loved and followed the Lord Jesus, who wrote many things and led strong movements. You see, Susanna Wesley is the mother of John and Charles Wesley, one of the greatest hymn writers and the father of modern Methodism. Many accounts the faith of Susanna and the way that she raised her boys as the spark that took the gospel across the frontier. You've probably heard this name before, Lottie Moon. <clears throat> Lottie Moon is a, is a more well-known woman, one who served faithfully for years, Lottie was a missionary, a single woman who moved to China and gave her life for the sake of the gospel. Today, we actually take up an offering at Christmas time called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, which is named after Lottie because when she was in China, she wrote hundreds of letters to churches, to individuals, asking them to support the mission. And now, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, all the money that comes in goes to fund our international mission, missionaries. Women of the faith who, if we fall victim to culture and look at a text like this and assume that all women are the problem, miss those historic women. I'll give you one other name. This one is close to me. Her name is Elizabeth Elliot. See, Elizabeth was the wife of Jim Elliot, one of five missionaries who was killed by the Indian tribe in Ecuador that they were trying to reach with the gospel. Here's what I love about Elizabeth, is that <clears throat> a few years after the death of her husband and her friends, she moved back to Ecuador and continued to minister to the tribe of people who killed her husband. She prayed for them diligently. She worked with them. And over the course of that time, saw many come to know Christ. These are all co-laborers. You see, Elizabeth Elliot is close to me because Knox's middle name is Elliot. He's named after Jim and Elizabeth to remind us of the need to go to take the gospel 
to places. You see, his first name, Knox, he's named after the Scottish reformer John Knox, who was a product of the Reformation movement moving from Germany to Scotland. And John Knox is famous for saying, give me Scotland or give me death. I want the people of Scotland to know the Lord Jesus. Co-laborers in Christ. These aren't random individuals. And I want to challenge us in that. Because when you have disagreements with people, they shouldn't become random people to you. Oftentimes we have disagreements with the people that we're closest to, right? And those relationships are now affected because of that. And it happens in the church all the time. And when unity is non-existent, it affects the mission of the church. Because relationships matter. Let me give you this take-home truth. That co-laborers in the gospel reconcile to the glory of God. Co-laborers in the gospel reconcile to the glory of God. You see, too often we come into disagreement with brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the church with us, and we disagree with them, and we allow those things to fracture our relationship, oftentimes to the point of not being able to worship in the same church anymore. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't reasons to worship in other places, right? Because for some of us, some minor, minor doctrines are more important than others. They shouldn't be primary doctrines. But some of those things are more important to us, and because of that, we have to choose which place we land in. That's okay. But that doesn't mean that we can't be friends with those who we disagree with, right? Right? It doesn't mean that we can't minister together and, and love our city together and do certain things together, but we have to reconcile those relationships to the glory of God. You see, Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. From now on, this is verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is... In Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself. He's saved us. Paul says in Ephesians, he says that we were once children of wrath, sons of disobedience, enemies of God, but God who was rich in mercy, who died in our place, has reconciled us to him. Now our eternity has changed, but not only has God reconciled us to himself, watch this, the language that we use here, he's restored us to a relationship vertically, 
But now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, that restoration has to happen horizontally now amongst people. Let me say it this way. Time is too short to not reconcile with people. If you truly believe that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, if you truly believe that God exists and that we're all going to live eternally somewhere, and the only way to live eternally in heaven in the presence of God is through a relationship with Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who shed his blood to pay for our penalty of sin, who was raised from the dead to conquer the power of death that the grave has over us and he's coming back to make all things new. If you truly believe that and you truly believe that none of us but God the Father knows when the end will come, then time is too short to not reconcile with people. Time is too short. We have to live urgently. You say, I have no idea how to do that. Great. I'm glad you asked the question. Here's three things that you need to do. The first is this. You need to agree with God. You need to agree with God. You need to agree that sin is the problem. And that he's the only one who can fix that problem. You see, if we don't agree with, with him, if we don't have a relationship with him, if we haven't been reconciled to him first, we're not going to be able to reconcile well with other people. Especially in the church. The second thing, you need to take the log out of your eye. Matthew 7, 1. Write that reference down. Matthew 7, 1. Everybody loves this verse. Right? Do you know it? Judge not. That's where we all stop, right? Culture, right? Don't judge me. Let me do me, right? But the rest of the verse says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. You see, that's the problem. Is we want to judge other people, but we don't want them to judge us. You see, another way to say that is that we don't want to, we want to hold others accountable and tell them what they've done wrong, but we don't want them to hold us accountable and tell us what we've done wrong. But listen to the rest of it. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but, you, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Like, don't first go try to tell other people what they've done wrong. Look inwardly, God, what have I done wrong? How do I need to confess to you? How do I need to be reconciled to you so that I can, because I believe that time is short, urgently go to others and share the gospel truth with them? We need to take the log out of our own eye. And then we need to love one another. We need to love one another. 
First John 4 says that God is love, and we're supposed to love others with the same love that he has loved us. We need to love people, not condoning the sin that they're living in, but so deeply love them that we believe they need to be reconciled. They need Jesus, right? They need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need to take the log out of our own eye first before we take the speck out of someone else's eye. And here's what I've learned from my experience. Oftentimes the things that aggravate me about other people are the issues that I struggle with. Do you realize that? Like maybe that's the same struggle for you. Like man, I get so aggravated when people are so impatient. And yet I struggle with patience so much. Right? It's it's oftentimes the things that we're struggling with that we see in other people. And I think we do deep down care about them and want them to deal with those things, but we first need to deal with them in our own hearts, right? That's what I want to do this morning. I want to call us to respond to the Lord. You see, because in this text, Paul is naming these two women because he wants it to be known that they need to reconcile together. Like, I've, I've tried to reach them in church. I need you to come alongside them as well and encourage them to reconcile. Maybe there's somebody that you need to reconcile with today. Maybe it's God. Maybe God is who you need to reconcile with today. you got some issues with the way that he's operated things in your life. You need to come to a place this morning where you confess those things openly with him. To ask him to reveal things that are in your own heart. You need to see him clearly and you need to agree with him that your sin is the problem. God's not the problem. It's our sin that's the problem. We need to confess those things. Maybe that's who you need to reconcile with this morning. But maybe there's somebody in here that you need to reconcile with. You've had a disagreement about something and you just need to go to them and you need to reconcile that. And I don't mean sarcastically saying, I'm sorry. Right? The same thing that you get aggravated with, that that's the way your kids apologize. Right? Don't apologize like that. Seek to learn. Like, what, what's, what's the issue? Like, have I done... Because, do you realize this? That disagreements come one of two ways. They either come because you have done something or someone has done something to you. That's oftentimes where the disagreement comes from. And oftentimes when we seek to reconcile, we go pointing the finger that it's someone else's fault instead of questioning, am I at fault too? We need to reconcile well. Because co-laborers in Christ reconcile to the glory of God. I have a great resource called Christ-Centered Conflict Resolution. Just a short book, helpful in practical ways to do that. I'd love to share that with you guys. Um, let's pray.